And the greatest thing that we have together is his word. We're going to turn to his word now. Um, and we've asked one of our young people, uh, Zach, uh, to come and read to us from 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. Okay, so 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see that the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, as we have your word open, may we understand and know the power of it. And this morning, may, uh, may we meet with the living God through your word, that our lives might be changed, that we might know Jesus and become more like him. We pray this in your name. Amen. So when, when the Matrix films came out, I don't know if you're old enough to remember that time, um, they, they were groundbreaking because of the CGI effects that were being used. And the outstanding feature of the film were the action sequences, because in the middle of those fast-paced chases or fights or shootouts, all of a sudden, the film would slow down to a super slow-motion time frame. The characters would be falling back in super slow-motion beneath bullets that were gliding menacingly past them. And those action sequences were slowed down so that the viewer could capture the tiny details of what was going on. It was a new perspective in cinematography. And in many ways... It reflects what the writer of Two Kings does in chapters 4 and 5 of this book. You see, the writer is writing this book covering a period of 500 years, from the history of King David to the exiles in Babylon. And because of that timescale, it means that the writer has to skim quickly over a lot of detail in order to tell the whole story. And yet occasionally, like today, you come to chapters where time slows down. These chapters are an example of where the writer goes into a kind of CGI slow motion speed in order that we might see the finer details of what's going on. And that's why we're going to slow down too and spend the next three weeks in this chapter. And as we look at it together, we have to bear in mind the original readers who were exiles Jewish exiles living in Babylon 200 years after the events that we've just read about. So those original readers had lost everything. Their country had been invaded by the Babylonian Empire in 586 BC. Many Jews were killed during that conquest. And those who were left were deported to Babylon to become slaves. And the author, author writes this book to show those people what went wrong. 
which means these slow-motion chapters are where he wants his readers to pause and take note. In chapter 4, as we saw two weeks ago, the author wants to take those original readers and show them that in the midst of a faithless country, Israel, there were still faithful Jewish people who loved their God. So chapter 4 was written to give them hope in their situation, to remind them that God was still with those who were faithful to him. But chapter 5 is a real surprise because it's not about Israel. It's about about a, a, a pagan military leader who comes to know their God for himself. And these exiles needed that chapter and need this chapter because it shows those exiles that God is at work in the world and in the lives of even people who are not Jewish. And even more than that, this chapter shows them that he can use even the weakest of faithful believers to be his witness. And isn't that what we also need to hear this morning? In our culture where Christianity is either portrayed as a weak vicar of Dibley joke or as a dangerous cult to avoid, it's easy to lose heart. So like those original readers... Don't we need to be reminded this morning that God is at work? God is at work in this world. And God is at work not just amongst Christians, but amongst people who aren't Christians. And not only that, but he can use the weakest, most feeble-minded Christian to bring his message of love to this world. Don't we need that this morning? And there are three things the writer wants us to see in these first few verses of 2 Kings, chapter 5. And the first thing he points out is this. Self-sufficiency is an illusion. Self-sufficiency is an illusion. What do I mean by self-sufficiency? Well, the best way of describing it is, is that comfortable place where life is just so good and so perfect that God is an added bonus or even just not necessary. Look with me at verse 1. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So the writer paints this picture. Naaman was a great man of his time. He was powerful. He commanded the armies of Aram. Uh, The Arameans, by the way, were Israel's enemy. He was popular He was highly regarded. He was successful in his work. Verse 5 tells us he was even well-connected. He could speak to the king freely. He'd climbed the corporate ladder, broken through the glass ceiling. In today's world, he would be a kind of hybrid between Bear Grylls and Iron Man. And on top of this, we're given a behind-the-scenes spiritual insight into why he was so successful. We're told that God was with Naaman to judge Israel. In other words, even God was on his side. There's almost no room in this verse for any more detail of of Naaman's amazingness. So he's set up at the beginning of this chapter as a picture of self-sufficiency. And yet there is a sucker punch, isn't there? And it's a kind of withering sarcasm of the writer of One and Two Kings. Honestly, if you ever want to really kind of look at One and Two Kings closely, just look for the sarcastic comments. They're absolutely all over the place, and this is one of them. 
With a withering sarcasm, the writer saves the fly in the ointment till last. He mentions the elephant in the room. Those last four words of verse one, but he had leprosy. They're four words that completely destroy the man who had everything. And the writer describes Naaman this way because he wants us to see that you can have everything, but in the end, something will always ruin the picture. When you think you're in control, there will be something that spoils it. The illusion will always be shattered. It's a storyline that resonates with our world. My dad, for example, in his late teens, struck out in life with a public school education and, that, and the conviction of that being British and posh and culturally Christian meant nothing could go wrong. But the reality was he went to Australia seeking his fortune and after a few years found himself penniless and homeless living on a beach in Perth. The illusion had evaporated. He didn't even have the money to phone home or write a letter. It might be a storyline that's resonating with you today. That your self-sufficiency has crumbled under the crisis of a pandemic. It could be you're, you're facing financial ruin or ongoing ill health because of the virus. You could be in a dead-end job that you didn't want to take, but had to because there was nothing else because of the pandemic. Even more subtle than that, it might be that there's a tragic flaw in you that no one else can see. So on the outside, you're a Naaman, and everybody wants to be you and have what you have. But inside, there's a deep grievance, or an arrogance, or an addiction or an anxiety inside you gnawing away at your soul and causing you deep, deep misery. Can you see what the writer is wanting us to understand by putting those four simple words at the end of this verse? Self-sufficiency is an illusion. It's a lie. There will always be a tragic flaw. And what he's saying is this. Stop envying the self-sufficient. It's foolish because we have no idea what the tragic flaw is, but I tell you what, it's always there. And that would have been a comfort to those original readers of the book. You know, they did have nothing, and they were surrounded by people who had everything. Their masters were people who basked in the glory of self-sufficiency and world domination. But the writer wants these readers to see it's an illusion and, there's a greater, and, and there is a greater truth to build your life on. And that is the truth that God is sovereign in every circumstance. God is sovereign in every circumstance. I don't know whether you noticed how God's sovereignty features in this opening verse of chapter 5. Look, look at it again with me. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given him victory to Aram. So God had given Naaman both his victories over Israel as well as his tragic diseases, disease. The verse tells us God had international politics in the palm of his hand as well as personal circumstances 
And it's a point made to comfort those readers. The writer's saying, be content, guys. Circumstances are in God's hands. Both international politics and your own personal sufferings, they're in God's hands. And, and I imagine many of those reading this would have struggled with that truth. And I know many Christians today struggle with that truth. But analyze it quickly. Why do we struggle? Why would they have struggled? Well, one reason is we believe life ought to be better than it is. So we resent God for the circumstances he's given us. We wonder why God has brought those circumstances into our lives. And we can express that resentment in a number of ways. We get very angry at our situations. Some of us grumble. Grumble at our bosses. Grumble at, 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 at our pay. Some of us are greedy. greedy. We want more stuff. We think life owes us more. Others are desperately seeking fulfillment in stuff or relationships because we're discontent with what God has given us or not given us. And yet here's the truth in those kinds of sufferings. God is good. God is good. We don't know his ways. They are way above us. And we, we never will we never will. But what we do know is the character of God. So here's the, here's, here's the point that he's making. It is confusing. It's perplexing. We'll never get our heads around it. But hey, what the Bible tells us is that God is good and that God is perpetually holding out his hand to us and saying, take it and trust me. And trust my character and trust that what you are going through is good and right and perfect and my ways are just and you may invest in this suffering because by it you are being shaped by the living God. That is God's invitation. That was the invitation to those readers. They were exiles, they had nothing and yet as they were reading this, as they were reading about God's sovereignty in international politics and personal circumstances, the invitation is there, it's good. Will you come and invest and enjoy the character of Godness in your suffering? That's the invitation. And that's what contentment is. To say, I am suffering, but God is good, and I want to draw near to God in it. I know that's difficult. I know that's difficult. The last year has told us it's difficult, isn't it? Oh, the, the last year has been so, so confusing, so perplexing, so spiritually draining. But the writer wants us to say, in those times, and there will be times ahead, I promise you, in those times, invest in your suffering. Take the opportunity to set your alarm clock 10 minutes earlier, 20 minutes earlier, half an hour earlier, and spend that time in prayer, reading through the Psalms, reading through all the psalmists who cry out to God in, in, in seeking his face and echo them in your hearts and draw near to God by doing so. There is the invitation. He wants us to see that God's hand is behind it all. 
reaching out to us and saying, come. Come, invest in your suffering. Come, come, come again to me. And that your circumstances may not be easier, but you will know the character of the God who is good better. It might be that you're not a Christian here this morning. Well, let me just point out that when our self-sufficiency crumbles, when God shakes us out of that comfortable place, that is when we see our need for God. That's what happened to Naaman. He had everything and yet was nothing. Do you recognize that about yourself this morning? And this story tells us he began to look in the right places. He began to reach out to God. And that's a story that's told throughout history. You look at the history of the church. Hundreds and thousands and millions of Christians have been in the same place at the end of themselves. Augustine, Calvin, myself included. All at the same place. They come to the end of themselves and they cry out to God. The same happened to my dad on that Perth beach many years ago. He came to the end of himself and realized his self-sufficiency was a lie and that his life was in the hands of the living God and that's when he realized he needed God. It was there in that desperate moment where he reached out to God and finally trusted in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And perhaps this morning, I don't know your circumstances, but perhaps you resonate with that this morning and you don't know God as your personal Lord and Savior. Perhaps you resent him. Perhaps you're still in that place where your circumstances are not right and you're cross with him. Perhaps it's time just to take a rain check and say, do you know what? This is a circumstance brought by God that I might reach out to him and trust in him. When we're at the end of ourselves, just like Naaman, then we start listening to God. The second point this morning I want us to look at is that dependency on God is a foundation. What I love about the writer of Kings is that there's such a subtle sarcasm about how they tell the story. On the face of it, the story is about Naaman who had everything and yet had nothing, but woven into this story is a story of a character who is actually the opposite. So let me read verse 2 to you. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. The writer tells us that God had allowed Naaman, the commander of the Aramean armies, to send out raiders to make war against Israel. Those raiders had probably attacked a village and taken a little girl from her family. Everything she knew and loved was gone and she was made a slave. And in deep irony, she found herself serving the very man who sent those attackers to her village. Wow. How would you and I feel in that circumstance? This verse is a remarkable contrast though. Because rather than telling us about the bitterness of her soul or the deep desire for revenge that she had, Instead, it tells us that whereas Naaman had anything, in truth he had nothing, and whereas she seemed to have nothing, in truth she had everything. Do you see that? Do you see the subtle sarcasm of the writer? And even though she knew the pain of deep loss, she also knew the love of God. 
Even though she was a slave in a foreign country, serving the wife of the man who caused her suffering, she still believed in her God and his power over all their circumstances. And here's the thing, because she understood her riches in knowing the living God, it meant she wasn't blinded by the self-sufficiency of Naaman. Instead, she had compassion on his circumstances and not her own. Isn't that incredible? In a sense, here's the other reversal. She realized that she was truly free under God and that, was, and that he was truly a slave to sin. Just these subtle sarcasms, these subtle ironies creeping into the narrative. And for those original readers reading this in Babylon, her example would have challenged them in their circumstances. They too were exiles. They too were slaves. They too were faithful. And the challenge for them was to follow the logic of her worldview. That the truly rich and blessed people in this world are those who know the living God. That's the bottom line. If you're a Christian here this morning, do you believe that? Are you convinced and totally, totally, totally assured of the fact that you are the genuinely richest person in the world? Totally, absolutely. Are you convinced of the riches of the glory of the kingdom of God that will be yours when Jesus returns? Are you totally putting your heart and your soul into that moment? There are the riches. So in spite of suffering, in spite of atrocities, it's the believers who are the ones looking into the future, knowing that one day all this suffering will end and that we will see Jesus face to face. There's our riches. And because of that worldview, you see, she could look past her own suffering and speak powerfully with compassion and grace into her master's suffering. And her worldview is a challenge, therefore, for us too. It's tempting to look around and see others who are better off than we are or more successful than we are or seemingly more happy than we are in their self-sufficiency looking down on us. But look instead at what they need. Look at how they need Jesus and the riches of knowing him. And as we look with compassion, like this girl looked with compassion at her master, we too can ask, well, what do we lose by inviting friends and colleagues and neighbors and families to things like the Forge, to the Family Fun Day, to the Murder Mystery, to the Blast Fridays, to evangelistic services, or even to Sunday services full stop? What do we lose by that? Nothing. Because in the world's eyes, we have nothing. But what do they gain absolute riches by that invitation? Her boldness is grounded in a worldview that I sometimes struggle to have myself, I have to be honest. But it's this, she has nothing in a worldview. She has nothing that this world values. But because she has built her mind and life around God, it means that she has everything to offer name and her master. And that brings us to the last point this morning, which is this. Listen to those who point to the word of God. Listen to those who point to the word of God. Again, I know I go on about irony. We've got three weeks of irony, okay? So just work with me. Another subtle irony. 
is that the most powerful people in the world listen and obey a little slave girl. Have you noticed that about this, these verses? The humor wouldn't have been lost on the readers. They would have understood the point. Is God at work in the world? Totally. Can God work in a pagan country hundreds of miles from Israel? Absolutely. Can God use even the weakest of people to be his witness? Yes, he can. And that's what verse 4 tells us. I'm going to read it from the ESV version because that conveys a, a bit more of the original Hebrew which, which, which has a, a flavor of authority to her words. So let me read it. For, you'll see what I mean uh, as I read it from the ESV. It says this in the ESV. So Naaman went in and told the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So there's a sense of, thus saith the Lord. When when God speaks in the Old Testament, it's often preceded by, thus saith the Lord. In other words, here's the word of God, authoritatively speaking, into a context. And this is the same kind of flavor, that flavor of, this is the word of the Lord, therefore obey it. It's authority, it's power, it's, it's magnificent. And if you look at it, there would have been thousands and thousands of experts and medical advisors to the king telling Naaman to try this ointment or or that cure or or that shaman or those sacrifices to those gods over there. Experts would have been queuing up to try and treat him uh, and to be in the pay of the most powerful man in Aram. But he didn't listen to them, did he? Chief medical advisor, no. High priest of Dagon, no. He listened to her. And her message, (laughs) I love this, her message is just totally not popular. It's not what he needed to hear. Go to Elijah the prophet, the man who speaks the word of God in Israel, and he will save you. He will cure you. He will deal with you. In Naaman's culture, what she was suggesting would be like telling a Gestapo general that salvation from a dreadful disease lay in listening to the words of a Polish rabbi. But thus saith the Lord. Her words have power. She's from the wrong class, the wrong race, the wrong religion, but Naaman listens. And not only does he listen, but the testimony of God's word was heard by the king, and the king listened too, and he wrote a letter. And do you know, whereas a slave girl could only point to the word of God that she knew, Elijah the prophet, today we point to the one that Elijah and all the prophets in the Old Testament pointed to. The true, full, final revelation of God's word, Jesus Christ We have to understand as we point to Jesus, we preach Jesus. He is the final authority in this world. And we might not realize it. It might not seem that our words are hitting home. But to talk about Jesus just as that little slave girl talked about the prophet is the most powerful thing in the world that we can do. Talking about Jesus, God's word the final revelation of who God is will change businesses, will change governments, will change nations, will change the world. Do we believe that? Do we take courage from what God's word says this morning? 
So let me finish by pointing to the prophet. I, I can think of no other way of finishing. Jesus is God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe that? Is that the most powerful, powerful statement of declaration of who Jesus is in the world? 2,000 years ago, he came into this world to die. Why? Because God loves the world. And as he died, he took the penalty for our sin. Christ, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, he was God, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. A great swap took place on the cross. As Jesus died, he who had no sin became sin for us. He took our sin upon himself so that we might be free of it. He took the penalty so that all who believe in him might be forgiven and know God personally, both today and forevermore. This is the most powerful thing we can talk about. We know this is true because he rose from the dead three days after he was killed. And he has promised that he will return again to judge the living and the dead. And if you haven't done so already, will you believe in him? What does that look like? It means to say this to Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe you are God. I believe that you died. I believe that my soul is diseased with sin as Naaman's body was diseased with leprosy. And I believe that you, the word of God, are the only one who can heal me of it and take away my sin. Will you forgive me this morning? I believe that Jesus is Savior. But I believe that Jesus must be Lord too. That just as, and we'll see it next week, Naaman's life was totally changed and he became a true believer and follower of God. So too, I cannot simply believe that Jesus is a good savior. I must follow him as my Lord, my God, my King, my everything. So that even though I have nothing, I revel in the true riches that come through his shed blood on the cross. If you don't believe that this morning, will you take your sin to him and ask him to forgive you? We're going to be singing a hymn in a minute, and the band can come up, actually, if you could. And it says this, what can wash away my sin? What's going to deal with it? Well, the answer is nothing but the shed blood of Jesus. And look, I'm really happy to talk to you. If you want to talk after the service, please do. Please just come and chat. I'd love to chat about what it is to trust in Jesus and believe in him. And if you're unsure, it might be that you're still struggling with, the self, still struggling with envying the self-sufficiency of this world around you. Still struggling with, the rich, with, with understanding what the riches in Christ are. 
Well, again, please just come and see me or, or one of the elders. One of them's got a big balloon hanging off him. Do, um, do come and chat. We'd love to just chat. Why? Because we're talking about Jesus, the most powerful thing we can do in the world. Let's sing this great song. What can wash away my sin? What can heal me of sin, that dreaded disease, the blood of Jesus? Let's stand together and sing.